Exodus chapter one. If you've got a Bible, please open it up there. If you don't have a Bible, grab hold of one. Get one from somewhere in the house. You need to have it open in your lap. We are going verse by verse, traveling through the scriptures. We have, as a fellowship, done this once before. So this is our second time around the globe of the Bible, around through the scriptures. And now in the second book, the book of Exodus, or as you Bible students know now, it is the Shemot. That is the book of names, the Shemot. So Exodus chapter one, and we're gonna cover a couple of chapters tonight, Lord willing, and the saints don't rise. Exodus chapter one. The land of Goshen was lush, a beautiful land. See, the Nile River, interestingly, the Nile River actually flows south to north. It flows from the Egyptian highlands downward but northward toward the Mediterranean Sea. There in northern Egypt, it divides into multiple rivers and tributaries, creating what is known as the Nile Delta. And just to the east of the Delta, surrounded and watered by such tributaries, is the land of Goshen. Goshen itself means cultivated. A cultivated land, a fresh land. In fact, the Bible indicates the best land in all the country of Egypt. It's a garden land. It's some of the best land, and over 3,400 years ago, it was set apart for the Hebrew people by Joseph. We just finished that story at the end of the beginning, the end of the book of Genesis. And when you think about the land of Goshen and how beautiful it was, what a garden spot. I'm sure there were at least some, if not many of the children of Israel who loved living in Goshen. Who wouldn't? Coming down out of Canaan, and especially the southern area where, where so many, where Jacob dwelled, Tel Sheba, Beersheba, and, and South Hebron, and that region was mostly dry, very arid, very much desert. To come into Goshen would be like landing in Hawaii, just a beautiful garden land. So there would have been those who loved it, who were accustomed to living there. They had been there 400 years. It would be a total of 430 years by the time they actually set foot out of Egypt. And when you live in a land so beautiful, so cultivated, so rich, why go back to Canaan when here is so sweet? Why depart? Who longs to leave when all is right with the world? I'll tell you what. We long to leave when all is not right with the world. In your life and in mine, don't you find that it's the weeks that are not going well where you, where you say, Lord, how long? Don't you find when you're stressed out or worn out or, or sick and tired of things that you're seeing that you find yourself more often saying, are you coming, Lord Jesus? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But man, when everything's going great, when you're cruising along, firing on all cylinders, everyone's happy and slappy, man, that's not a time you really think about going home because this is pretty good. This land is sweet. Well, tonight as we open up the book of Exodus, the Shemot. Understand that this book focuses on the heart of Yahweh, 
which is a heart of redemption and a heart of deliverance for all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13 tells us. But you gotta be saved from something. And when everything's going well, when everything's sweet and easy, sometimes we don't realize the need for salvation. Well, things are about to change here for the children of Israel. I gave you a four-part outline on Sunday morning. Let me give it to you again. If you're just joining in for the first time now or, or gathering with us and you wanna jot this down, a four-part outline taking us through the book of Exodus, the Shemot. Part one is chapters one through four where we deal with the deliverer. Part two is chapters five through 18 where we deal with the deliverance. Chapters 19 through 24 is the delivery, part one. And that's dealing with Torah, as the Lord will deliver the law and Torah to Moses to bring to the people. And then finally, chapters 25 through 40 is delivery, part two, where the Lord delivers the plans, the architectural blueprints, if you will, for the tabernacle. So deliverer, deliverance, delivery, parts one and two, and tonight we will meet the deliverer. I'm gonna give you six things to jot down as we go through chapters one and two. If you like to follow along, if you wanna follow outline style, you can do that. But we begin here in Goshen with number one, a developing nation. A developing nation. Watch this, verse one. Now these are the names, the Shemot, of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household. Reuben and Shimon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty or numerous so that the land was filled with them, a developing nation. So at this point, 350 years have passed since Jacob died and his family has multiplied massively. Remember, just 70 coming down out of Canaan, gathering together there with Joseph and his family for a total there of 75 and now we're looking at millions, perhaps. Pharaoh calls them in verse nine, Am Bene Israel. Am Bene Israel. That is the nation of the sons of Israel. What was a family coming down is now a nation. And even Pharaoh recognizes this Am Bene Israel. Bene Israel is sons of Israel. Am, this is a unique phrase that's rarely used. But the nation of the sons of Israel, that word Am is a nation by blood. The other word for nation that you'll see in the scriptures is Goy, where we get Goyim, where often it's translated Gentile. But Goy is a nation by location. Am is a nation by blood. So it's a, a nation by, an, by a people group. Exodus chapter 12, verse 37 will tell us that departing from Egypt, there were 600,000 men on foot aside from children. 
So you take that number, 600,000, and you add a wife and a child to each man, and you quickly get to 1.8 million people. That's just one wife, one child, one woman per one man and a child, 1.8 million. Add a couple more kids, and we know that the Hebrew people had multiple children in their families, but just add a couple of more kids, and you get to 3 million that quickly. That's where often you hear the number 3 million of the Jewish people coming out of Egypt because if you're adding up families, it comes to that very easily with 600,000 men. And in verse 7, note that Moses uses language pointing back to the original creation mandate. In fact, keep your ears open because you're going to hear some references to Genesis as we go through chapters 1 and 2 tonight. But the original creation mandate the Adamic covenant. Genesis 1.28 tells us God blessed them and said, listen, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. What does he say in verse seven? The sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. We're seeing a fulfillment in Israel of God's original design of his original intent for all humanity, now focused on the sons of Israel, on Beni Yisrael, the nation of the sons of Israel. God would restate this in the Noahic covenant, Genesis chapter nine, verse one. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fruitful, multiply, fill. All three we see repeated by Moses here in verse seven of Exodus chapter one. In the laboratory microcosm of Goshen, God is fulfilling his original desire for all mankind, but with a specific nation or people group. And of course, remember the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, Genesis 13, 15, 17, or Genesis 22, where he brings it together there on Mount Moriah, and he says, verse 17, I will greatly bless you And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, as the sand which is on the seashore, not sandwiches, but the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. So right out of the gate, we have a developing nation within a nation. And that doesn't work. It doesn't work. A nation within a nation can only bring division. Maybe that's what unnerved Pharaoh so much, that within his nation of Egypt, there's a people group growing massively who are not of Egypt, but they're filling the land. They're spreading out. They're multiplying. You can't keep up with them. There are little Hebrews running around all over the place. And Pharaoh doesn't like what he's seeing. In fact, verse eight says, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. A biblical dating puts the Exodus somewhere in about the 1440s BC, 1442 to 1447, somewhere in there before Christ. I call it a biblical dating because scholars have tried to give all kinds of weird dates to this. They've tried to apply things to it and they've come up with some really wonky ideas. The Bible gives it to us clearly if you'll accept God's word as true. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse one says, it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, 
In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, in the second month, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Well, we know that Solomon began construction on the temple in the 960s B.C., So all you gotta do is back it off from there, 480 years, and you come to the 1440s BC. Biblically, that's, we see, when this was taking place. So historically, that would mean it's between a couple of pharaohs. A pharaoh, uh, Thutmose, from 1483 to 1450 BC, for you history nuts, and pharaoh Amenhotep. Amenhotep II, from 1453 to 1425. So these were the players on the scene, but what's interesting is the Bible declines to name the Pharaoh. Bible's not interested in the big wig on earth, in the one sitting in the high seat, in the man of power, and so Pharaoh doesn't get a name. We have to look into the annals of history to try and pull out a couple of names. But this Pharaoh no doubt saw himself as highly significant in the day. You know who God sees as highly significant in the story? A couple of midwives, sister, a mama, a daddy. People who wouldn't be named anywhere else, but when they walk in the spirit of God, when they follow after the lead of the Lord, they become highly significant. Verse nine, He said to his people, that is the Pharaoh, unnamed, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply and in the event of war, they will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. See, Pharaoh had a problem in the 1440s BC and that was the Hittites up in Canaan were amassing in strength and power and were causing problems on the border of Egypt. And he feared that if they aligned with all of these Hebrews in Goshen, he could have a real problem on his hands. So he decided to put down the Jewish people. Verse 11, so they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and in all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. And so the second thing to note tonight, as we see this developing nation, suddenly there is a dreadful affliction, a dreadful affliction forced upon them by the powers that be. And note this affliction. (laughs) They weren't just told to stay home. Their affliction was rigorous. The Hebrew word is parek, harsh, severe, cruel. Their affliction was bitter, which is yemoru, which means it was grievous and painful. And in a similar word, or at least a a, a synonymous or a a word that sounds similar here, afflicted is ye'anu. So you have yemoru, bitter, and ye'anu, which is afflicted. And affliction in the Bible, in the Hebrew scriptures, this word means forced humiliation. 
This is not a humble yourself in the sight of the Lord kind of thing. This is a forced humiliation into servitude. And suddenly the garden of Goshen was filled with dreadful afflictions. But you note in verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize this. It is always that way. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. When you're talking about the people of God, be it Israel past or the church present, the more the affliction, the more the multiplication. That's how it works. Because when you have the spirit of God, when you're following after the one true God, he causes the multiplication. He causes the fruitfulness. Think about the early church. From the birth of the church at Pentecost, for its first 283 years, they faced nothing but constant persecution. Horrible persecution. By some estimates, anywhere from eight to 10 million Christians that were martyred during that time in forced humiliation and grievous painful treatment and cruel and severe behavior. The more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied. Tertullian was the one who said the blood of martyrs is seed. The blood of martyrs is seed. It just causes the church to continue to grow. And it was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter five, verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up in America, as a kid in this country, I read that verse. As a young adult in this country, I would come to Matthew 5, and I'd listen to Jesus say, blessed are those who are persecuted, and I'd think, I don't know that I ever really have been. I don't know that I've ever really felt that kind of oppression or persecution against the church. And truly, no one goes looking for it. No one desires affliction. However, it was Paul who wrote 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, it will happen if you're seeking to live godly in Christ Jesus. If you just wanna follow him and be like him. Family, I think we're finally getting there in this host country. I think we're finally beginning to see in this country as around the world, a change taking place that is causing the church to be uncomfortable. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. But get this, note this. It was the dread of Pharaoh and the Egyptians that brought this affliction. I call this a dreadful affliction. The dread was not of the Hebrews. The dread was among the leadership and the people of Egypt. They dreaded this blessed people. They feared this multiplying, fruitful nation within their nation. They dreaded what they could not understand and what they could not control, and the same is true today. Now, you might 
look at this situation as it comes up, and especially verse eight, that a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and you might say, well, this isn't rational. It's not rational that the people of Israel, the sons of, the, of, of Israel, be treated in such a horrible way. I mean, wasn't it a Hebrew who saved all Egypt from famine? Joseph was the man. He brought a great salvation to the nation. Prager responds this way. He says, human beings tend to much more quickly forget the good that others have done for them than the bad that others have done to them. And he's absolutely right. Someone does a good thing for you. You're gonna forget that much faster than someone who comes at you or attacks you or does something negative or says something negative. You know the old adage, it takes what, 10 positives for every negative just to turn it around? I'm pausing here because I want you to get this, that the closer we get to the end, the less the world will remember all the good of the Judeo-Christian ethic. The closer we get to the coming of Jesus, the less the world will remember the good that Christianity has brought to the world, has produced in the world, and the more the hatred will ramp up against the people of God. And that's disconcerting. And that can even cause some to be fearful. Even as we see the kind of anger and violence, the problems that are seemingly insurmountable in our country, in the world today, people are forgetting the good of Christ in the church for a nation, for this world. You might say, well, what do we do? What do we do about this? Because it is unsettling. Please listen closely. While the world forgets, Jude writes, verse 17, you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts. It's gonna be that way, Jude said. He went on to say, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But Peter adds something, and this is the great part. Remember, Jude says, the words that were spoken, it's not gonna be easy in the last times. Mockers will come. Divisions will happen. But Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior by your apostles. What commandment? John 13, 34. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, love one another is not a new commandment. That was old as the law, as, the, as Torah law itself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another. That's a godly law. But Jesus said it's new. Why? Because he said, love one another as I have loved you. That's how you are to love. Now we have the Jesus example of what it means to love one another. He said, Love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And we can do this. Because you see, while the world forgets the goodness of God, while the world forgets about you, about me, God never does. 
He always remembers his people. Now hold that thought. I'm gonna come back to it. We'll see this. So a developing nation facing a dreadful affliction, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was named Pua. Shifra and Pua were actually common feminine names, Hebrew names, and they mean, Shifra means fair, and Pua means splendid. Fair and splendid were their names, and Pharaoh said to them, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put him to death. If it is a daughter, then she shall live. So these two Hebrew midwives enter the story, fair and splendid. And Pharaoh calls upon them to commit infanticide. I want you to know this interesting that the Hebrew midwives were not necessarily Hebrew. In fact, the language can just as easily translate these midwives of the Hebrews, and the context of the story as we go forward seems to indicate they were probably not Hebrew. They were simply midwives who worked in and among the Hebrews. That was their job. But as Pharaoh commands infanticide, the killing of these newborn baby males, watch what they did, and they did not do. Verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. The midwives were commanded by Pharaoh, but they deferred to God. Number three in our list, we come to a deferential conviction. A deferential conviction. Conviction, that is they deferred to God because they feared God, the Bible tells us. Their fear of God was greater than their fear of Pharaoh. I gotta address something here as this Pharaoh calls out the murder of the unborn. Right at birth to take their life. Listen, this is not ideological. This is not political. This is not even personal, those who put babies to death don't fear God. It's that simple. Those who put babies to death don't fear God. The media right now is tracking faithfully COVID-19 deaths every day. You can check it out every morning when you wake up, how many people have died from COVID-19. It's on the pages of the news. It's splashed across the news sources. You see it every single day. What you don't see is the daily number of abortions in our country. It's 3,000 a day. Let that sink in for a moment. I'm not talking 3,000 in a month or 3,000 in a year. Every day, 3,000 children are killed. 3,000 unborn babies are aborted in America. Planned Parenthood is responsible for 947 of those every day. So a third of all abortions is from one organization. That tallies to 39 abortions an hour. You might say, well, Rick, I, I don't wanna hear that. That's upsetting. That's the point. It should be upsetting. 
Do you realize that during the COVID crisis from February to May, if you just do the numbers from February to May, COVID-19 has taken the lives of over 102,000 people. That's a lot of people. But abortion has taken the life of 363,000 babies. In 2019, abortion was the number one cause of death globally. See, that's what's going on in this world. Those who put babies to death don't fear God. Proverbs 14, 26 tells us, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death, but where a country, where a community, where a person stops fearing the Lord, Life goes away. We fear the Lord, but those who put babies to death do not fear the Lord. Now, let me just say this. To anyone who has had an abortion or been party to an abortion, if you've done it out of, out of fear, out of ignorance, out of selfishness, there is forgiveness. There is mercy there is grace, I guarantee you there's mercy for that child and grace for the infant. But there is also for the person who has done this in your past. I know because every time I talk about this, every time the issue comes up, there's somebody listening whose head goes down because they know what they've done and maybe they didn't when they did it. Maybe as a teenager, you had an abortion and you didn't know any better, you really didn't understand but you know now, and every time it comes up in the scriptures or in a Bible study or in a teaching, you just sink in guilt and despair. Listen, there is forgiveness, but I gotta tell you, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Repent and turn to the Lord, and you hand it to him, and you confess it to him. Don't just ignore it and wallow in guilt. Turn to him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, these midwives did right. They did not follow the lead of the Pharaoh. They feared God instead. And verse 18, said, 18 says, so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. Watch this. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. The word vigorous there is, I mean, you might as well just say l'chaim. They're, they're filled with life and they're bursting and they're having kids and we can't even get to the house before the kid's born. And that may have been true. I don't know that, I mean, this is the excuse they give. I don't think that they're necessarily lying, but of course they're trying to put Pharaoh off the track. And we're told in verse 20, so God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very mighty or literally very numerous. They just kept spreading out. Pharaoh's plan of infanticide did not work. And because the midwives feared God, he, that is God, established households for them. Which is interesting because oftentimes in that time, a midwife was barren, which is why she was a midwife. She gave her services 
to the birthing of children when she couldn't have children herself. And so God turns around and says, I'm gonna give you families. I'm gonna bless you. And once again, we see the Abrahamic covenant in play. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. Now there's something else we gotta pause and address here. A question that comes up as you look at what the midwives did. Is there a time when it's okay to defy the civil or governing authorities? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter nine, very clearly obey the governing authorities. God put them in place. First Peter chapter two, Peter underscores the same thing. You obey those who are in authority and both Paul and, both, and, both Paul and Peter were talking about Nero in Rome. You obey the government. Both Peter and Paul went willingly to prison and to death. So they weren't talking about, you know, even some of what we're dealing with right now, they were talking about a much more severe climate, and yet they said you obey the governing authorities. So the question comes up and is strong right now, when is it time to defy? When is it okay to stand against? And I'll tell you when. When obedience to the civil authority forces disobedience to God. When obedience to the governing authority causes you to be disobedient to God. What happened to Peter and John? There in Jerusalem as the Jewish high authority, the Sanhedrin called them in and they summoned them, they commanded them, Acts 4.18, not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John replied, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. You know what that statement implies? If you feel like you have to put us in prison because we're defying you, so be it, but we're gonna do what God told us to do. And so they defied the very authority over them because the authority was trying to shut them down from talking about, from speaking the name of Jesus, and they couldn't do it. When any authority runs counter to the will of God, that's when we respectfully and civilly disobey to obey the Lord, but even then, we accept whatever consequence it brings. Then why aren't we meeting? I, I know some of you already asked that. Well, okay, fine, what about this? Why can't we just be civilly disobedient? Let's get back together. And many Christians are concerned about the threat to our fundamental constitutional liberties, our American right to assemble. And I'm thankful for that right. I truly am. I have spent my life in the assembly of the saints. I love our gatherings. I've said this recently. But I don't believe that this is about persecution or forced disobedience to the Lord. It's about protection against an unknown virus. Oh, yeah, but the numbers aren't anything like they told us. Yeah, because they don't know. Do you? Are you an expert on the subject? I'm not. But I can tell you right now, and here's the good news. Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus said, where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. It's never about numbers with the Lord. It's never about packing out an auditorium or a sanctuary. 
It's never about rubbing elbows with as many people as possible in that sense of, of larger fellowship. Hey, that's wonderful. It's glorious. And someday we'll know that like we've never known it around the throne of God. But Jesus made it clear. Hey, if you can get together with one or two brothers or sisters in my name, I'm there. Isn't that the point? I'm there with you. At a phone call with, with a dear brother earlier this week who's really been having a hard time with this, stuck home alone, trying to get out, and I told him what I'm gonna tell you right now. You don't have to stay home on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Go to the website. We've got a number of homes now in Anacortes and in Oak Harbor where people who own those homes, who live in those homes, who are saying, our doors are open, come worship with us. Come join us in our household. And let's, let's turn on the TV, we'll do the live stream together, but we'll, we'll worship together, we'll take communion together, we'll have fellowship, and that's going on right now. Go to the website, look up the names, call a house, and get there. There is no reason for anyone to have to stay home, unless you feel like, boy, I, I need to, health reasons. Maybe you're in a high-risk group and you feel like I, I'm, I'm safer just to be home. That's fine, we keep the live stream going but we encourage you to be in fellowship, even if it's just with one other family. Because where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus says, I'm there. Well, the, the, the midwives, back to this, they commit legitimate civil disobedience because God's Noahic law of life was on the line. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, Every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile. And every daughter, you are to keep alive. And the implication there is every Hebrew son. Every Hebrew son, kill him off. Every Hebrew daughter or any daughter, that's fine. They can, they can stay. You know what the idea is, is that if you kill off the sons, but keep the daughters, then daughters can then intermarry into Egyptian society and Israel disappears. Suddenly, you no longer have a nation within a nation. You just build up the, the nation itself. Kill the boys. My friends, this darkly prefigures the infanticide of Herod, which will happen at the time of another deliverer, the great deliverer, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter two, verses 16 through 18. For us, we can see clearly it's just another of Satan's not so veiled attempts to destroy the people and the lineage of Messiah. Chapter two. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. And then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Number four in our list here, a delivery of devotion. A delivery of devotion. And we meet here, though they're not yet named, they'll be named in Exodus chapter six, verse 20. We meet the parents of Moses, Amram, and Yochaved. And just like the midwives, these two feared God over Pharaoh. How do we know? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
So by faith, the faith there was not the faith of Moses. He's just a baby. But it was the faith of mom and dad. And they saw this beautiful child and they said, oh, we gotta, we gotta save him. We gotta protect him. We gotta raise him for a baby beauty pageant. Hey, this is so weird to me. Now the parents, they, truly, they feared the Lord and they were devoted to life. But both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament use this, this phrase that baby Moses was beautiful. In three places, both here in chapter two of Exodus and then over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, and also in Acts chapter seven, verse 20, where Stephen recounts it and he said, it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely or beautiful, same word as the Hebrew pastor, beautiful in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. What's going on here? I mean, honestly, we talk all the time about the spirit. Who cares if the baby was beautiful or not? I know there's some of you moms who would say, well, my baby was beautiful and there's some of us who have seen your baby <laughs> baby's always beautiful to mama. It could be the most pinched, pink, ugly lizard of a thing, and mama's gonna think he's beautiful, right? The word beautiful in the Hebrew is tov, tov. You, you say in, in Israel in the morning, you say boker tov, which means good morning. Tov means good, precious, agreeable. And that's the word applied to Moses. She saw that he was told. She saw that he, he was beautiful, precious, good. In the Greek, Acts chapter seven, Hebrews chapter 11, the word is osteon, and it means fair, handsome. Again, good. The Bible scholar Delich says that it's a particular token of divine approval. That's why the Bible mentions the beauty or how beautiful this child was. A token of divine approval, a sign that God had some special design concerning him. That's nice. But again, every mother thinks her baby is beautiful. It's interesting, Dennis Prager says that this is a mundane description. She saw that he was beautiful. Well, this is common. In keeping with Torah's profound desire, he says, to prevent Moses from being regarded as divine and therefore worshiped by the Jewish people. So on the one hand, you have someone who says it's a, it's a token of how, how special he was. And on the other, you say, no, no, every baby's beautiful. So, you know, it's just a mundane thing. Listen, there is always miraculous in the mundane where God's hand is involved. Yochaved, Moses' mama, she saw the uniqueness of her child as every mother does. She saw her child as beautiful and she feared God. In other words, she recognized the preciousness of this little life, so she did what was right. Excuse me a second. <coughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Don't worry, it's not COVID-19, it's just allergies. Yochaved did what was right, but, but there's something even more intriguing to me about this phrase, and look at it again. In verse two, she saw that he was beautiful. Or literally, listen, she saw that he was good. 
Does that sound familiar? She saw that he was good. I believe that this ties us back again to the Genesis record. Five times in Genesis chapter one, verse 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25, it tells us God saw that it was good. Same exact phrase, but now it's she saw that he was good. Same phrase. Genesis 1.31 tells us God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Remember who penned Genesis and Exodus. It was Moses. And in writing this down, he's implying that his mother saw the very hand of God in his birth. God saw that it was good. She saw that the baby was good. She saw he was good. But there's more weight to this. Couple that with verse three, and we get yet another link back to Genesis where it mentions that she put the child in a wicker basket, literally a papyrus reed basket, and the only other time the word for basket is used in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew scriptures, is Genesis 6 through 9. The word basket is tevat, it's ark. She made a little ark. It's an intentional, I'm, I'm sure of it, an allusion to the ark of Noah. Think again, Moses is putting this together and he's writing this down. This is exactly what happened, but she makes a little ark. She covers it in pitch, exactly as Noah's ark was made. It's a vessel for salvation and it's set afloat on the very waters of death. And so this is, this is a delivery of devotion to life. She saw that he was good in the same way that God saw that created life was good. And so she sought to protect that life. Well, verse four, his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen. And I'll just point out quickly, there are a lot of very important women in Moses' life. The two midwives, his mom, his sister, even the daughter of Pharaoh. So ladies, don't think for a moment that you are insignificant in the plan of God. He's working in all of us. So the sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. The daughter of Pharaoh, verse five, came down to bathe in the Nile. And she was with her maidens walking alongside the Nile when she saw the ark among the reeds and she sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying and she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Well, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? <laughs> we'll find out later. This is Miriam, but what a brazen thing to do. The baby is found and suddenly Miriam pops out of the reeds. Hey, you want me to go get a nurse for you? <laughs> and I'm, I'm pretty convinced Pharaoh's daughter knew exactly what was going on here, but she says to her, verse eight, go. And so the girl went and called the child's mother in a moment of divine irony. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now, not only does she get to nurse her own baby, but she gets to be paid by the government to do it. <laughs> it's marvelous. Verse 10, the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him Moshe. Moshe, and said, because I drew him out 
of the water. Interesting, in Egyptian, the name is Mose. You could spell it M-O-S-E-Y, Mose. And Mose in Egyptian means heir or offspring. So she named him my heir. This is Pharaoh's daughter. She's naming him heir to the throne. In Hebrew, Moshe is from the Hebrew word or connects to the Hebrew word masha, which means to draw out. I drew you out of the water. Josephus tells us about Moses that he did indeed become a mighty prince. In fact, as a young man, he became a legendary warrior in Egypt. He led a victorious campaign against the Ethiopians. This is all in in the writings of Josephus. And Josephus tells us that Moshe was, in fact, indeed next in line to be the Pharaoh as Pharaoh's daughter's heir. But godly devotion of his parents or perhaps the spirit of God or both, what happened is it drew out the heart of a deliverer from this prince of Egypt. Listen again, this is over back in Hebrews chapter 11 as the Hebrew pastor gives this example. Verse 24, he says, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Hebrews eleven twenty seven says, by faith, he, that is Moses, left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. That is, he looked to, he trusted in the God unseen, the invisible God. Now, if you're paying close attention, you'll notice Hebrews eleven twenty seven almost seems to contradict what happens next. Hebrews eleven twenty seven again saying that he departed Egypt by faith in the Lord. But watch this. Verse 11, it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. At this point, he's 40 years old, according to Acts chapter seven, verse 23. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw there was no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. My friends, this is intentional premeditated murder, first degree. He went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other and he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. Verse 15 says, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh. He took off running in fear. Pharaoh is calling for his life. Moses fled. Wait a minute. The Hebrew pastor said he left in faith without fear. He he didn't fear when he left Egypt. But here it says he fled for his life. So which is it? The Hebrew pastor in the book of Hebrews is probably referring to the second time that Moses left Egypt in the Exodus. 
Because as he led the people out, he led them by faith with no fear. And that's what I believe Hebrews is referring to there. But the first time he left Egypt, he was hightailing it out of there because he was fleeing from his own premeditated murder. Now, to try and understand Moses, you could say he saw injustice. You know, perhaps he even sensed the intent of God to deliver this people from bondage. But the problem is, in committing this murder, Moses got out ahead of God by the energy of his flesh. He's working in the flesh. The flesh answer, save him now, do it now, conquer now. What if Moses hadn't done this? What if he hadn't killed the Egyptian? Would the people of the sons of Israel have had to wait another 40 years to be delivered? Or might they have been delivered right away? Well, we'll never know. But we can know this, don't rush the Lord. Don't rush the Lord. It never does any good. And oftentimes it does much harm. Don't rush the Lord. Psalm 37, 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. This is God's plan that we're caught up in, God's plan that we're a part of. But when we rush ahead of the Lord, we can mess the plan. And so in this case, deliverance for the people would have to wait while Moses took a long-term course in anger management. Far away from the palatial halls of Egypt, out in the vast hill country of Midian, number five, he comes to a distant education, a distant education. My friends, it's Moses who would later write in Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. And Moses knew that firsthand. His sin found him out and Moses fled. And rather than driving the plans or forcing the hands of God, what marvelously happens is that Moses learns to be a shepherd. He gets trained over 40 years how to lead a flock. Listen closely. You want to know how a shepherd leads a flock? You do so by following Yahweh. This is what Moses will learn. It's in the Mount Horeb, in the hill country of Midian, that Moses will meet Yahweh, that he will begin to learn of Yahweh and to follow after Yahweh. And as a shepherd, he will be brought back to deliver his people. But this is a hard lesson for hard-headed humanity. How to lead by following. By the way, that's not leading from behind. How to lead by following the spirit of God. Jesus said in John chapter three, verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Rick, where are we gonna be tomorrow? I don't know. Well, how can you be content with that? Because he knows. And those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God and can rightly shepherd then the people of God. Well, verse 15, 
Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. Note this, and he sat down by a well, and that's where you go to be perfected in the spirit. He sat down by a well. Man, go to the well. Sisters, go to the well. Drink, rest, be watered for the walk that is ahead. This right now could be a well season for you and for me, a season where we would do well to be at the well. <laughs> John chapter four, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Paul said in Galatians 3, 3, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The flesh profits nothing. We talked about that on Sunday. Paul says, Galatians 5, 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And the man, the woman who walks by the Spirit is the best kind of leader. The best shepherd is the one who himself, who herself is following the lead of the Spirit of God. Well, Moses goes out for a little distance learning, a little distance education, and he learns this. Verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And so we see early on in Moses' life, in his manhood, he was by nature a defender. He's already tried to defend his people in Egypt poorly. He did it by the flesh. Now he stands up again to defend these women from these bad shepherds who are trying to draw them off. Moses had a strong, innate sense of justice, but his sense of defense needed to be watered, needed to be washed in the very presence of the Lord. Romans chapter eight, verse five says, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Well, verse 18, when they, that is the seven daughters, came to rule their father, he said, why have you come back so soon today? So they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. And so he said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you've left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Maybe I can find a husband for one of my daughters. <laughs> Go get him, he says. Now, you might ask the question, is his name Ruel or is it Jethro? Because right down in chapter three, verse one, we find out that Moses' father-in-law, this same priest of Midian is named Jethro, but here the name given is Ruel. Why? Ruel, Jethro, is the priest of Midian. The Midianites, they were a people that were born from their father Midian, who was the son, do you remember this, of Abraham and Keturah. So Abraham's Wife Keturah bore him Midian, and now the Midianites, all these centuries later, have grown from that place. And Ruel is a prince, or a priest, sorry, a priest of Midian, and it's entirely likely a priest of God Most High, not a pagan priest. Ruel, the name, 
maybe a title. Jethro, his name, Ruel, means friend of God. He's a friend of God, Ruel. So perhaps a priestly title. Jethro will come back into play in the story later on, bringing wise advice and help to Moshe as he's going to need it. But I'm reminded that God's got friends everywhere. That even as he's working with the people and the nation of the sons of Israel in Egypt, he's working among others too. We primarily focus on Israel because this is about God's work with his chosen people. But God's got people everywhere. He's got the Jethro's, the rules, if you will, in Midian. And they're there to help us with our deliverance, our distance learning, and along the way. Exodus chapter 2, verse 21, Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Zipporah, which literally translates little bird. And she gave birth to a son, and, she, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. I like the name Gershom. Gershom means the foreigner, a stranger, an outsider, a sojourner. In fact, the word sojourner in verse 22 is ger in the Hebrew. So Gershom is the sojourning one. And that's what he names his son here. And it reminds me that we are sojourners. We are sojourners. And the land in which we live may be looking more and more foreign to you all the time. It's okay. It's okay. Listen, as we conclude, we're, we're coming to something I really wanted to share with you. Listen to verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. For a little while, Israel had it sweet in Goshen. Man, they were living the high life. That well-watered garden land that reaches all the way up to the tip of Egypt toward the Mediterranean. There's a lake right there, an inlet lake at the edge. A beautiful place to exist. They were set apart from the rest of Egypt, so they grew and developed as a nation. And they were blessed in that place until, until Joseph was forgotten and the sweetness turned into groaning. As verse 24 said, so God heard their groaning. And here's where I begin to really relate. You see, Romans chapter eight, verse 22 says, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body, and the less it's sweet here, and the more we groan now, the more we long for deliverance. Listen, your very groaning in this past week or month or season that groaning is causing you, causing me to desire deliverance, to want to be called out, to want to go home. I'm waiting eagerly for it. But listen up. I was caught off guard over the weekend. We all were, of course, with the riots that took place. 
the violence and the protesting and everything that was happening. I'm not speaking for or against right now. I'm just speaking, so please hear me on this. All this was taking place, and as a pastor, when you're gonna teach on a Sunday morning and your lesson's all studied out and done, and you know what you're gonna talk about, and then some major world-shaking event happens, and then you gotta go back to the drawing board. Because you know people wanna hear something. They're gonna expect you, to, if, I, if I said nothing about the riots and the protests, you would have been like, is Rick in the world today? So I spent much of Saturday reviewing the notes and rethinking what it was we were gonna talk about. And it was tough and it was frustrating because honestly, like many of you, I didn't wanna deal with it. I didn't wanna think about it or talk about it. Well, I've had a few days to process. So I wanna talk about it now. There are two things right now that are permeating our country, if not our entire world today. Evil and despair. Evil and despair, and they feed off one another. As despair rises, evil sees an advantage. And where evil is in play, despair, that lack of hope, increases all the more. And it's just a very vicious cycle of evil causing despair, which allows a room, room for evil to grow even greater as despair increases. And so many are feeling this right now. We despair in that there seems to be no answers. And we're talking about racism today. How long has it been since the Civil War ended? And we haven't gotten it right yet? What does it take? How can we get to that point? And so many right now are saying there's no hope in this world that is just diving headlong into what James calls disorder and every evil thing. It's crazy. Now listen, even the peaceful protester, even the person who's simply standing up and saying, this must stop, is speaking against something that he or she cannot stop. This is the root of the problem. It won't stop. What, racism? Listen, at the root of what's going on in America and spilling out even into other countries right now, at its root, please hear me, this is not a race problem. This is not a police brutality problem. Now, I acknowledge both racism and police brutality took place. But it's not a race problem. It's not a police brutality problem. It's not even an ignorance problem. Listen, it's a sin problem. It was sin that killed George Floyd, plain and simple. And until we can deal with the sin problem, we will never solve racism. We will never solve the stupid ignorance that continues to prevail in humanity until we solve the sin problem. And my friends, there's only one way to kill sin. We need a deliverer. And no human being can do it. The loudest voice, the strongest voice, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated peacefully standing against the racial inequality in this country. He couldn't change it. He brought about some change and good change, but he, it still goes on. 
it goes on because sin is at the root and no human being can kill sin. Well, except one. 1 Timothy 2.5, listen to how Paul words this. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony at the proper time. Paul calls him, listen to this, he calls him the anthropos, Christ Jesus. I pointed out recently, anthropos is not man as in male. Anthropos is humanity. He says, this is the man, the anthropos, the human Christ Jesus. He's the only human who is also God. In essence, he is the theos anthropos. He's the God human, the only one. And so he's the only one who can bridge the gap from human to deity, from mankind and humanity to God, the only one who can step in and solve the sin problem to deliver us. Only Jesus. Nothing else will do it. You can set up political programs. You can change the laws. You can add all kinds of things to the books. You can protest till you're blue in the face. It will not solve the problem of sin. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus is our deliverer. And Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. You know, when all is right in Goshen, who wants to go home? Who wants to leave? And yet, how many of us want to be delivered from this world now? I want to say to my African-American children who are listening, and I have four of them, and I want to say to all my brothers and sisters, Jesus will make this right. Jesus will make this right. The day is coming when Jesus will make this right right. And until that day, what this world needs more desperately than any other thing, this is number six in your notes, is a deliverer's recognition. A deliverer's recognition, verse 24. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. Oh, this is beautiful. God took notice. You might want to jot this down in your Bibles. The word took notice, it's one word in the Hebrew. It's literally knew. God knew. God knew them. He knew them all by shemot, by name. He knows you. He sees you. He remembers you. He hears you. Those Four words here that stand out so vividly. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. You see, Jesus will make this right. But until he does, in the face of evil and despair, swirling around in this world, remember, he told us it would be this way. And remember, he commanded us 
to love as he loves. And if you wonder how can we, we can because we know God hears us. We know God remembers us. That is, he's mindful of us. We know God sees. And we know that God knows every name, every one of us. And we know our deliverer is coming. In fact, in chapter three, the deliverance is gonna start to roll. But our deliverer is coming to this world as well, and Jesus will make it right. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. Oh, Jesus, our deliverer, we know We believe, Lord, that you hear us. And so we call to you. We believe that you are mindful of us. And so we approach your throne of grace to seek help in time of need. And this is a time of need, Lord. Father, we know you see us. And even more remarkably, we know that you know each one of us. So tonight we bow. We come before you. We pray, Lord Jesus, for peace. We pray, Lord Jesus, for righteousness for this world. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look to that day. But until then, Lord, help us to love the way you love. In Jesus' name.